Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. This is our uh, end of the year spectacular, if you will. Lots going on. Uh, one of our co-hosts, Rob Hunt, is taking advantage of the holidays to spend a little time with family. But my other co-host from the beginning of time, Jim Marty, is here. Uh, and we are also joined today by a rare on-camera or on-microphone appearance from our noble producer, Dan Humiston. As you all know, this is Jim Marty's final show with us. He's retiring. Uh, we're going to be doing quite a bit of talking with Jim today about uh, the, the, the highlights of his career, uh, a couple of Grateful Dead moments that he'd like to talk about. Uh, we do actually have uh, a little bit of Grateful Dead New Year's music for you. And in fact, Dan, if you want to go ahead and run that intro clip right now, that would be great. <laughs> Grateful Dead jamming on Might As Well from December 28th, 1984 at the San Francisco Civic Center in San Francisco, California. My first ever uh, experience seeing a run of Grateful Dead New Year's shows, and we will get to that in a few minutes because we've got a lot of other good surprises from that. And keep that train motif from Might As Well in mind. We're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but first, let me say hello, uh, uh, at least for the moment, for the last time, to my co-host from day one of this show, Jim Marty, uh, from Longmont, Colorado. Jim, how you doing today? Very good. Enjoying the Christmas season here in Colorado. Uh, it does not look like we're going to have a white Christmas. We're into a very high-pressure, dry, unseasonably warm uh, December here in Colorado. But enjoying the, the California-like weather. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I'm perfect for a wedding, right? Yes, so we have a, a Christmas wedding. Our older son, Matt Marty, is getting married to Megan McCready on Monday, the day the show airs. Congratulations. Very exciting. And uh, just another uh, wonderful thing going on for you these days, you know. That's all good. Very excited about all of that. And uh, let me just say hi really fast also to Dan Humiston, our producer. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm here with a little bit mixed emotions. Uh, excited for Jim's ne next stage of his life, but also sad to see him leaving. We've been a great team for the last few years, and it's going to be, he's got some tough few, some big shoes to fill. So we have a lot of work to do in order to make sure that our show stays as consistent as it was with Jim on board. Absolutely. You can kind of think of us as the original trio, you know, certainly a welcome addition with, uh, with our good friend, Rob Hunt. But, uh, you know, for Jim's last show, we're, we're circling the wagons and we're saying goodbye to him and, uh, uh, really happy that we could all have a chance to do that. Well, thank you all very much. And I, I will come back from time to time to review concerts I attend. So including the upcoming Playing in the Sand in uh, Cancun, Mexico. Excellent, excellent, excellent. You can't keep a good man down, and we will always look forward to that. So really, just quickly, Jim, since we are the Deadhead uh, Cannabis Show, and we can't completely ignore cannabis uh, today, um, here's a story that's come out that I just think is so wonderful on so many levels, um, and that is that in Berlin, Germany now, when you purchase a train ticket 
uh, for their little local transit system that takes you around town. Uh, they are now preparing the tickets on a rice paper that's been soaked in cannabis oil so that once the ticket is acknowledged by the conductor, rather than tearing it up and throwing it away, you can put it in your mouth and it will dissolve, I guess, and it will be the equivalent, not of no THC, uh, but apparently uh, a pretty decent amount of CBD um, designed to help the traveler relax. I, I think it's brilliant. What do you think about that? Oh, I think that's a great idea. Um, I'm sure it will help them relax. I've used uh, hemp and CBD products to, for sleeping and relaxing, and I enjoy them very much. I think at some point, CBD and, and low THC cannabis products will exceed high THC products because not everybody likes to get high. I, I estimate maybe 20% of the adult population likes smoking and getting high. But everybody, as they get older, has joint pain and knee pain and can't sleep. And um, I have friends in my world, Vietnam veterans in their 70s. Just, hey, Jim, you know, I don't like smoking that marijuana. But I'll tell you, that cream really helps my arthritis. I, you know what? I think you're absolutely right, Jim. And that's a great point that uh, I think it's just a matter of we as a society of cannabis users becoming a little more sophisticated. Right. And and understanding all the different things that are out there. And, you know, we, we there's always going to be that initial period of, wow, I can buy all the marijuana I want. And so I'm going to go do it and smoke it all up. But, you know, like you say, eventually uh, the focus shifts to other things. Uh, I think it's a great idea what they're doing. And quite frankly, I'd love to see the U.S. Uh, air industry get involved. Can you imagine we read about all these people getting on all these planes and flipping out and, you know, beating up airline stewardesses or whoever? If they were all sucking on their tickets that had, you know, a good amount of CBD, maybe they'd all just all relax and go to sleep until they got to wherever they were going and quit causing so much trouble for everybody. But uh, I think really, to me, the, the, the biggest part of that story, Jim, is that, I mean, you know, here's a, here's a municipal government, right? They're the ones doing it. It's not just some uh, entrepreneur who comes along, the city of Berlin is saying, we think this is a good idea. Fascinating. Yeah, another uh, twist and turn that we never expected. Absolutely, that's right. You know, I, I, I've said this way too many times, but since it's the last time I can say it, I'm going to say it again. When I met you back in November of 2013, you know, the idea that we'd be sitting here not only having our own uh, podcast to talk about marijuana and cannabis all the time, but that we would be talking about things like companies with, you know, $450 billion of assets or whatever these crazy numbers are these days with marijuana companies and, and, and governments where they're not only endorsing the use of cannabis, but they themselves are incorporating it into the, the daily lives of their citizens, right? Every citizen who buys a train ticket now is getting a, a cannabis-laced ticket. They don't have to suck on it if they don't want, but the government's giving it to them. And, you know, it, it just amazes me to see uh, you know, the, where cannabis has been. And I guess if you stop and think about it, five years from now, we won't recognize that either. Well, um, that Beatles song, Ticket to Ride, is never going to sound the same to me. <laughs> That's great. You're uh, very true. You know, I guess um, uh, McCartney and Lennon were a little more prescient than we gave them credit for. But, but I know uh, what you're saying. You know, you and I, um, and among others, we had a small part to play in creating this huge in my opinion, a $100 billion industry, which is still only about 30% on the uh, legal market. You know, the rest is still the, on the illicit market. So when I was in um, at MJ BizCon in October and just looking out at the 30,000 attendees and the 1,200 exhibitors 
And I said to one of my young, or not actually one of my young staff people said, and Jim, you had a part of building this. And I said, yeah, I really did. Well, and let's use this. This is a perfect transition, Jim. You know, the focus today is on you and, and your career as we wind down here. So please, by all means, pick up where we last left off is, uh, I believe there's a photojournalism story in there and then uh, uh, the, the, the full-time transition into the cannabis world. Yeah, we'll take a detour or two. But uh, yeah, I've told the first two parts of this story, how um, kind of the American dream story, kind of, because my wife Maureen and I started this business in one bedroom of our house in 1984. And today we have over 200 employees and 600 licensed cannabis companies as clients and another 600 real estate holding companies and supporting companies and hemp and CBD companies. And uh, so I'll get to how all that happened. Um, so we left it off in the middle where I'd built up the firm to about 10 people here in Longmont, Colorado. And in 2009, I came back from Bonnaroo. And uh, my friends were saying, Jim, you want to believe all that's happened while you were gone? All these dispensaries are opening up and they all need an accountant. So I um, accepted cannabis clients and quickly had over 100 cannabis clients. It overwhelmed my 10-person CPA firm. My staff, many of them had been with me 20 plus years. They said, Jim, we can't keep this pace up. The wheels are coming off. So in 2015, I had very good relationship with another CPA firm here in town. And uh, over a round of golf, they said, hey, you know, would you join our practice? And I said, no. They said, well, we have a young partner that kind of needs a book of business. So I said, well, I said, I would split my practice and merge out to you everything that is not cannabis which we did in January of 2015. Very successful merger. <clears throat> Through the years, I've had partners come and go, and mergers and acquisitions. I think I've been acquired a total of seven times, or at least it'll be seven next year when I retire. And I'm proud to say, never a lawsuit, never a mispayment. So everybody I've done business with has treated me very well. And um, so 2015, I put everything that was cannabis under Bridge West which I had originally formed with Hank Levy, a very well-known cannabis CPA in the Bay Area. I've told the story of he's the one who helped get me into this in the fall of 2009 when I flew out to San Francisco, met with Hank, met with Henry Wykowski. And I've said this before, but it's, it's very important, so I'll say it again. They said, Jim, the IRS wants you to help these people, and you're not going to get sanctioned for signing those tax returns. So I came back from that trip told the cannabis lawyers in Denver, I said, I'll do it. I'll sign the cannabis tax returns. So actually, Hank uh, Levy then called me and said, let's form a, a CPA firm just for cannabis. Well, unfortunately, his wife came down with cancer and ultimately died, and he called me and said he really couldn't go on uh, with Bridge West. So I took Bridge West over by myself, put all my cannabis clients under Bridge West. It was about 100, 120 Colorado cannabis companies at that time. And I immediately started looking for an upstream merger because I saw the need for a large, sophisticated CPA firm for this industry. And a large firm found me. And uh, they, Beckerman, Grafman, Mayer, up in Minneapolis, they had acquired one of the two license holders in Minnesota. Minnesota has medical only. And at the time, I don't know if they have it now, but at the time, no flour, just concentrates um, and edibles. And so they hired me to consult with them, which I did. One thing led to another, and they um, acquired Bridge West, or at least a big piece of Bridge West. I kept some equity. 
January 1st of 2017. And since then, um, we quadrupled our top line. We went from 120 cannabis clients to over 600. Uh, the timing was absolutely perfect. And it's gotten big enough that they can do it without me next year. Um, they're doing a very good job. And so uh, sometime in 2022, I will take my last buyout. And uh, I'll be old enough, given away my age now, but in 2022, I'll be old enough to collect Social Security. And to all you young people out there who say Social Security won't be there for you, I remember when I sold my first ice cream cone at an ice cream shop when I was in high school, and I got my first paycheck. They said, ah, that's Social Security, you're never going to see that. Well, I'm seeing it, and I think you young people pay into the system. It is actually a very nice uh, retirement for you. When you get older, they'll probably adjust the retirement age some. Anyway, that's how it got started, and that's where it's at today. One other quick story, and we'll move to some uh, music stuff. So it's from 2002 to 2008, I was a rock and roll photojournalist, and I've told some of the stories, but I wanted to tell the story today of how that got started. So early in 2002, uh, my son, Matt, who's getting married, uh, was in high school, calls me up at the office, as usual, I'm at my office. Hey, Dad, we got to go to this concert. Phil's going to be there. Bobby's going to be there. Widespread panic. Everyone's going to be there. Uh, Trey's going to be there. Dave Matthews. And so um, we booked the tickets. We took our travel trailer, drove cross country. We had a wonderful time. Phil Lesh with Bob Weir, a special guest, were the closing act on Sunday. I was a little tired. I, I set up my chair and sat down, and Matt went up front. And after the show, we walked out to Tennessee Jed is the last song. And he goes, Dad, I was like the resident deadhead. They were all asking me, what song is this and what are the words? <laughs> and the other part of it that maybe he doesn't want me to tell, but I will anyway. And they, they said, watch out for these pipes because the blue one's opium and the orange one is marijuana. At least they told you. That's a good thing to know. Well, that was a crazy scene. There was a kid in the middle of the road with a rope of opium around his neck, like two feet long. And for $20, he was breaking off a golf ball-sized ball of opium. So anybody who smoked out of that pipe, you had to warn them that, hey, hope you're not taking a drug test anytime soon because that's not marijuana. Wow. So anyway, came back from the summer of uh, 02, and I've been in Rotary for many, many years. And I'm sitting at Rotary telling stories of Bonnaroo and Red Rocks and how we... My son and I travel across the country to all these shows, and the editor of the newspapers, a friend of mine about my age, said, Jim, you, you should write about that for the paper. The Longmont Daily Times called. And I said, nah, I'm, I'm kind of busy with my practice, and I don't really have time for it. But I thought about it, talked to my son, Matt, about it, and uh, went back, and I said, you know what, we'll give it a try. And our first experiment was Bruce Hornsby at the Paramount Theater in Denver, and we did the show. I came back. The technology wasn't where it was today, so I used to uh, do the email as soon as I got home. I'd email in my reviews with a few pictures, and uh, what was the funnest part about it was Matt was in high school, and he got an internship with Marquee Magazine, a music magazine in Boulder, Colorado. So the two of us were getting slicks. A slick is your photo pass that sticks onto your jeans, and you don't get backstage. The, the artists don't really want the press backstage, and I understand that, but... I was taking pictures at John Bell's feet, at David School's feet. It was a fabulous experience. I've got great, I saved all my clippings. Uh, I have lots of great photos. I even came across my son Matt's uh, scrapbook of all the articles he wrote for Marquee Magazine. So anyway, those are my stories. Um, I think that's uh, enough about me for today. A little, 
one more thing I guess uh, we can talk about, and this shifts shifting over to music. I'm getting ready to go to Playing in the Sand. I hope it happens. A lot of things are getting canceled this week. There's the last week of uh, 2021. Uh, there's rumors that Fish may not do their New Year's run. Have you heard about that, Larry? I've just heard it as a rumor, and I'm and I'm not allowed to officially speak it because my wife and I got my son and his new wife tickets to the New Year's show this year uh, for their uh, uh, Hanukkah presents. So they're they're sitting there on their New Year's Eve tickets with all of their good buddies, and uh, they've been going to these shows for years. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed for them because you know this is the same group that got uh, bounced out of. Uh, what was the show up in um, Watkins Glen a year or two ago that got canceled at the last minute because the the water pipes all burst or something after a big flood and the curveball or whatever it was called. So, you know, it wouldn't be the first time, but obviously under these circumstances, you know, they have to be safe first. Uh, you know, the, the, the good uh, backdrop for all the rest of us who went to the University of Michigan then is there's no conflict and you can stay home that night and watch them hopefully beat the University of Georgia. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's it, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes here, New Year's Eve shows, uh, there's nothing like them. Did you ever make it to a dead New Year's Eve show, Jim? I did, 1985. San Francisco, or maybe it was the Oakland Coliseum. Yeah, probably the Oakland Coliseum at that time. In fact, I was there at 80, for, uh, I was there 84, 85, 87. 88 and one other time so yeah it was always good fun always good fun when you're out there and in fact uh that's another perfect segue uh right here into uh what we do want to talk about today are these um new year's opportunities you know like we say fish every year they have theirs the dead always have theirs and the dead was pretty standard they play uh like two or three shows in, in a good year four shows leading into the new year's show they'd always take the 30th off and uh, whenever the 31st was that's when they played their show fish has kind of pushed it onto the weekend i see where you know as much as they can so if if, if new year's if, if new year's is thursday into friday then they play the first second third and fourth instead of the days leading up either way you're getting lots of good music uh, I always kind of felt, though, that the New Year's Eve show was a great way to cap it all off and and send everybody home, especially when they'd play late into the night. So uh, this was a show from December 28, 1984, at the um, San Francisco Civic Center, which I believe is now named after Bill Graham, uh, and, and, and properly so. Uh, this was the first night of a three-night run culminating in New Year's Eve from 84 into 85, my first experience with it. I just finished my first semester in law school and was able to head out there with a good buddy of mine to meet up with a bunch of uh, Michigan friends of mine who we'd all been seeing shows on the West Coast together for a while. And uh, it, it was just really fantastic. We heard the Might As Well before, uh, which was always a fan favorite. And when Jerry would get rolling on that, uh, uh, there was no stopping him. Uh, and the entire show uh, just plays really, really well all the way through. The thing that I liked about these shows and that I uh, began to understand, though, Jim, is that for the dead, uh, although you couldn't always tell if they were tuned in or not to what was going on, they understood the importance of these shows. They knew they were getting the hardcore heads out there, and they were often launching ground for uh, you know new tunes that they wanted to try out or songs that uh, they had been, you know, uh, rumors had been circulating for years that they might eventually get around to playing them. And at that time in 1984, the dead had not really dived hard into the Beatles catalog yet. There was a lot of Beatles tunes that were being kicked around and considered, and one of the ones I heard almost from my first show in 1982 
was any day now the dead are going to break out day tripper which of course you know if you're a deadhead the, the name of the song alone uh, gives you hope and encouragement and something you want to be a part of and it would it would it would almost get to the point where day tripper they're going to play day tripper lucy in the sky with diamonds all of the lsd type songs and um you know shows came and went and nothing happened and yet here we are on uh, December 28th, 1984, and I'm saying to myself, yeah, I guess it's fun that I came out here for this. Let's see what they play. Uh, Dan, go ahead and, uh, and and spin this little clip we have of this and listen to the crowd noise when you, they finally realize after all these years they're getting the sun. <laughs> You can imagine uh, the, the place kind of blew up, and uh, it was just, um, it was amazing. You know, and it seemed from that point on, the, 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 the Beatles covers started to come. Why don't we do it in the road? Blackbird. They did eventually break out Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Uh, Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Jerry, yeah. Well, that's a, actually a great call. That was more... That was Jerry Garcia band. But you're absolutely right. I, I first time I saw the Jerry Garcia band, he played Dear Prudence, and that was the highlight of the night for me. So, um, yeah, uh, Jerry, you know, Jerry had his soft spot for the Beatles, and they they finally broke it out that night. And you know, we were all dancing around, very very excited that they did. And uh, it was really just the beginning of uh, some great shows that culminated for me in my first ever New Year's Eve show, a, a three-set affair. Uh, again, something that had always been talked about and rumored, but you never really thought, you know, when here they were, they came out for what we assumed was, well, we didn't assume it was the encore because they told us they were coming out to play one more set. So we all kind of sat around and waited for a little while. They came out and they played about a five-song set. And that night, they broke out Gimme Some Lovin'. And uh, I got to tell you, to see Phil Lesh at the time, you know, much younger than he is today, front and center, blaring on that bass and, and singing into the microphone with Brent Midland, it was a uh, one of those moments when you say, yeah, it was worth it to come out here for New Year's Eve, man, and I'm, I'm going to be back. It's just uh, too much good stuff going on. Yeah, well, there's quite a bit of overlap between the Grateful Dead and the Beatles. They never did jam together, as far as I know, but George Harrison spent a summer in San Francisco in 1967. The Beatles actually went, I believe it's the last Beatles concert in the United States, uh, Candlestick Park. Uh, The band and all the family, dead family, all went to see the Beatles in Candlestick Park. And uh, their comments was, boy, the sound was lousy. (laughs) They just (laughs) didn't think the Beatles had a, a very good sound system. So there's some overlap, which brings me to, I rewatched the movie A Long Strange Trip over the weekend, and that is the uh, Grateful Dead's uh, extended footage of the Grateful Dead's first visit to um, England in 1970. And it's actually, the CD, the DVD is, I think, 286 minutes. It's a very comprehensive uh, video, all the way from Magoo's Pizza Parlor, all the way up to Jerry's uh, demise and ultimate death. So it's very comprehensive. We're in a gift-giving season, so if anybody sees that 
I don't know if it's still in print or not, but if you see it used in a bookstore, grab it because it's a, a great documentary. Yeah, I think you're right. It really is. And, and, and all of these things that go back and tell us the stories, you know, it seems like we can't get enough of. And I love that you mentioned uh, the dead family going to the Beatles because one of the things that really impressed me when I read the electric Kool-Aid acid test uh, by Ken Kesey was way out there in San Francisco, you know, in the midst of all of this crazy experimentation with LSD and mind-bending music and, and stuff that was only, you know, I mean, happening on the West Coast. Those of us in the Midwest didn't even know about it yet, let alone be able to understand anything like that. And yet in the acid test too, he makes a big point about how they all headed over to the Cow Palace to see the Beatles. When the, and that may have been one of the first times the Beatles came through in the, in the early 60s. He said, everybody, that was it. Everybody had to go see the Beatles. They all stopped what they were doing and, and they all took off to go. And I guess there's really no greater respect, you know, for a musical act that when, you know, when other musical acts take or, you know, related type of businesses take time out to come see you. And I guess that's just, you know, kind of a little bit of an example of the sway that the Beatles held over, you know, not just, you know, the American culture, but, you know, specifically the American pop culture and, and, and the big role they played in all of that. You know, they were, they were doing LSD with the Maharaji and, you know, probably before Jerry and the boys or, you know, before Owsley or probably right around the same time. And, uh, Great minds think alike. Yeah, it's good we're talking about the Beatles because, you know, that seven-hour documentary just came out. Some of it uh, recorded uh, without their knowledge. And it's um, basically it documents the breakup of the Beatles. Uh, so over the holidays, if you're looking for something to watch, hanging around with the family, that I forget the name of it, but that documentary is amazing. It shows Paul McCartney you know, pounding out the first notes of Let It Be and other songs that are on uh, their last album. So a lot of Beatles stuff in the news and on TV these days. There is. And you're right, Larry. They they defined a decade. The 60s were the Beatles. Yep. And and I think that what we're going to find ultimately is that the Beatles will, you know, become to be the face and the voice that, that defines American pop music. Well, not, I shouldn't say American pop music, but certainly international pop music, American and, and British uh, in, in terms of the uh, the impact that they just had on everybody. And, um, you know, certainly we aren't the Beatles show by any means, but you can't really have any comprehensive conversation about any modern rock group without, you know, some discussion of the impact that the Beatles had on them. Yeah, greatest uh, songwriting duo of all time, Lennon-McCartney. I'm old enough that I remember the day the Beatles broke up. The news reached us uh, in America on a Sunday. And I was at 10.30 Mass with my family, and somehow the um, it was announced during the Mass, because as we were leaving Mass, in the back of the church, all the girls were crying their eyes out. And said, the Beatles broke up, the Beatles broke up. Uh-huh. And everybody said, so much for going to church, right? <laughs> at the day we all lost faith in religion, the Beatles broke up, who knew? But that's true, you know, and, and I sure, I mean, I was a little kid at the time, but I, you know, have an, a vague enough memory of it to know and have uh, older cousins who got to see the Beatles when they came to St. Louis and played at Bush Stadium in the mid-1960s. My wife's cousin saw them at Comiskey Park in the mid-1960s. And, you know, it's just it, it's just going to always be that, that, that little special piece of rock and roll history. Um, you know, and, and, and I suppose, you know, Jim, some might say that in their own way, uh, you know, maybe the dead are the Beatles of the jam band scene, right? That, that, uh, they, 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 they took this jam band music concept and they gave it a, just enough of structure and enough uh, direction that, 
you know, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, saying that all the other bands today, you know, owe whatever they have to the dead, but certainly, uh, you know, if it helped point them in the right direction and get them going and given us such great bands as Fish and Widespread and uh, String Cheese and all these bands that we love to talk about on our show, Tedeschi Trucks and the Almonds, and it's just, uh, it's wonderful to know as well that, uh, you know, like like the Beatles, you know, we talk about how, and maybe you'll see this at your son's wedding, at my son's wedding, everybody wanted to hear Grateful Dead music, uh, and they love dancing to that. It's, you know, this nobody's pushing it on them. It's not like this is my old man's music, uh, right? This is the music they want to hear and the things that they want to go uh, do, and God bless them, you know, as long as they want to do that, I think it's wonderful. Well, and there's a tie-in with Bear and Stanley Owsley, yeah. The first uh, acid test, the first time he saw the Grateful Dead, he said, this band's going to be bigger than the Beatles. And, and as far as a touring band goes, they, they certainly were. The Beatles stopped touring in 1966, mainly because the sound systems were so lousy. They thought they sounded terrible, and they did. And all the girls were screaming. And Owsley, always a problem solver, went to work on the Dead sound system and created the greatest sound system in history for a rock and roll band. That's very true. That's very true. And, you know, a lot of bands in that regard benefit, you know, from the, I don't want to say early mistakes, but the early trials and tribulations that bands like the Beatles went through. Sure, to think, you know, that they would trot them out into the middle of Shea Stadium, right, with 50,000 people screeching and yelling and basically play them over the public address system is, you know, I mean, that's... I suppose there's a lot to be said for being being there and still having a ticket stub, right? But uh, it's not quite the same as, you know, getting to see your favorite band from 10th Row Center at Red Rocks and getting the full musical experience. In that Long Strange Trip video, there's a lot on the wall of sound. It talks about it. It shows him setting it up. It uh, fills um, that sound check with his guitar, uh, talking about which speakers his bass notes come out of. Really comprehensive history of the Grateful Dead. I know we keep drifting back to that, but... Uh, very enjoyable. That is the topic of our show. So if, if we're going to drift, Jim, that's a good place to drift. Uh, we like it. I'm sure our listeners like it and, uh, and all of that. It's, it, it's just a lot of fun all the way around. So, yeah, well, what, what final uh, words of wisdom do you have for all of us? And, and before Jim passes on these words of wisdom, I'll, I'll say this. And no, he's, he's not paying me to, although I would say it anyway. People hear these kind of things like, yeah, yeah, yes, okay, thanks, time to move on, somebody's leaving a show, we get it. And, you know, sometimes it's it's a big name that everybody loves, sometimes it's a name that people may or may not know, but just so this moment doesn't go unpassed, you know, and, and you know, it, it, it's important to recognize the people who were the first of the marijuana old guard in this country, the, the people who... You know, we always say, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, what came first, a filed tax return or an accountant who was willing to sign off on it? You know, and the truth of the matter is that until we had attorneys, guys like Henry Wykowski and and uh, some of the people who were re- really in the very, very first group of attorneys in Colorado and California to lead the charge and accountants like Jim Marty and, and, and the people that he worked with, uh, Otherwise, there's no industry today. If people weren't willing to sign tax returns, there could have been no industry and the government would have just chuckled to itself and said, well, we tried and those people couldn't get their stuff together. If there's not attorneys who are willing you know, to, to basically risk their license at a time when most state Supreme Courts had not yet said whether or not they would consider it to be an ethical violation for an attorney to represent somebody who was involved in the cannabis industry. And you know, these are the people that... Uh, we can't forget about, you know, and it's all cool and nice to see 
Cresco and Curaleaf and, you know, and all of these companies, you know, making billions of dollars and, you know, and being international and doing all of that. But it only happens, again, because guys like Jim were willing to sign tax returns and take that risk and put themselves where they are. So when a guy like this says he has one more thing to say, listen to what he's saying. Well, I'll make a couple of comments. I always, you know, love the Grateful Dead. Got to see about 45 Grateful Dead shows before Jerry passed and many dozens of shows since then. But um, I said, boy, these guys are so good at what they do. I want to be that good as an accountant. And I really focused on that, to be the best accountant I could be. And the best business lesson I'd like to pass on that I learned very early on is, so you're in business or you're on life's journey and you come to a wall and it's too high to get over. You can't go around the wall. You can't go under the wall. How do you get past this wall? And the answer is you have to think your way past the wall. And that's what I've used in business for all these decades. When I come to a problem, I'll really sit down and think and think about how to solve that problem. And I think I do have a bit of a reputation as a problem solver. So those are my business worlds of wisdom. Think your way past the wall. I'm going to build on something that you talked about, Larry, but we we wouldn't be where we are right now if it weren't for, if it weren't for guys like Jim who uh, that saying comes to mind where we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And we go back to the time where I actually met both of you guys. And that was back in 2013. We were at that MJ biz conference in the horse track in St. In Seattle. And I met both of you guys at that show and, and then follow that up. I followed up with Larry and I said, Hey, we're going to do a, a, a cannabis conference and who should we get? And Larry said, well, let's call Jim Marty. So Larry, so Larry coordinated that. So the three of us are together on that. And then we go to the, and we do the next conference in New York. It's a, the same trio is there. Jim Marty joins us for that. And then I start the podcast. And my, one of my first guests, who other than Jim Marty? I think you were guest number two in the first podcast we did. And then as that podcast is unfolding, I have the two of you guys on and... <laughs> Halfway through the show, you kind of hijack the show and start talking about Grateful Dead. And I'm like, this should be a show. We should do a show on this. And and I, I without even with without any effort whatsoever, I said, Hey, you guys want to do it? Yeah, we're in. We're 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 in. And it's just an, another example of how of of Jim's willingness to give back. And whether it was being a speaker at the trade shows or sharing information with other accountants or being guest on the podcast or that talking about the Grateful Dead, it's 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 that type of person that that has been key to this industry getting to where it is right now. I'm thankful to have been part of your the, your journey, Jim, and I know Larry has been thankful. And and I I mean I I'm sure we'll have other opportunities, but I wanted to make sure that the rest of the industry knew how much of my success has been has directly been attributed to you, Jim. So I uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you both, too. It's been a, a great ride, great trip for all of us. Um, I really feel like I'm leaving uh, the Deadhead Cannabis Show in great hands with Rob Hunt and Larry and our producer, Dan Hummison. And I'll be back from time to time to do uh, concert reviews for you. But, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I think, what, we're well over 150 shows, aren't we? So, yeah, in good hands. And I'm looking forward to um, retiring in 2022. Uh, we bought a house in Mesquite, Nevada. Maureen is tired of winter, and I like the no-state income tax. So uh, be collecting Social Security and uh, 
living in a, a beautiful, small, much smaller house with no winter. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you. This has been great. I hope our listeners really are able to appreciate this. You know, this is one of those ones you kind of store away and, you know, you pull out many years from now and say, oh, yeah, who were the guys who first started the marijuana industry? Boom. And you got uh, instant history there for, for the next generation. Um, but it's been wonderful. It's been a lot of fun. Um, you've been a great uh, partner to work with on the air and a business partner to work with, uh, and you will be missed. Um, Rob sends his farewell and regards as well. But when you're back uh, for more interviews, you and he will have plenty of opportunity to speak again. As we uh, head out of our show tonight, just a quick moment, please, to say uh, thank you very much to Dan Humiston for another great year of producing the show, to uh, Jim and now Rob Hunt as well for being co-hosts on the show with me and, you know, letting me engage in something that, you know, was kind of a bit of a fantasy to talk about the dead and marijuana once a week and think that there might actually be people out there who give a damn at all about what any of us have to say about it. Um, and, and, and that's been a wonderful thing as well. So we hope everybody has a very happy and healthy 2022. Uh, hopefully this virus goes away and we can all get back to live music and doing what we love to do best. And uh, yes, that does include smoking lots of marijuana, seeing lots of Grateful Dead shows, and uh, anything else interesting along the way. Since this will be our final show of 2021, uh, what better way to say goodbye than to send you off with a uh, good old typical Grateful Dead countdown to midnight on New Year's Eve, and perhaps none more famous uh, than the one from the uh, December 31st, 1978 show that closed out the Winterland Ballroom in uh, San Francisco, California. So to everybody, good night. What you see before you is a 10, no wait, 12, 12 foot long, Begin the countdown. Five, four, three, two, two and a half, two minus one quarter. The joint Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.